world of high performance sports is constantly evolving. As the level of competition gets higher and the pressure to perform intensifies, knowing where to go to develop the knowledge, networks and skills that will lead to more impactful performance solutions becomes even more important for individuals and teams. That's where this podcast hopefully comes in. Here on the Leaders Performance Podcast, you'll hear thought-provoking conversations with practitioners, senior coaches, athletes and sporting directors, the individuals at the top of their game. My name is Henry Breckenridge. I work in the content team here at Leaders and joining me for this episode is friend and colleague, John Porch. John, how are you? And more importantly, where are you? Well, Henry, I'm very well to begin with and I'm at home. You caught me in the middle of packing my bag for Manchester because later today I'm going to be catching a train up north for Leaders Meet Driving Step Change in Female High Performance, our event which is taking place at the Etihad Stadium today as we publish this podcast. Sounds fantastic, John. I'm not a Manchester City fan, but I would love to get down to the Etihad at some point, so I'm slightly jealous of you. (laughs) Nevertheless, today's episode follows nicely on from that theme of gathering uh, some top practitioners and some top coaches in a room. Today's discussion is all about serial winning coaches, and we were joined by Professor Cliff Mallett and Professor Sergio Larabersiao. Sergio at Leeds Beckett University and Professor Cliff Mallett at the University of Queensland Down Under. Give us a flavour of what we spoke about and what listeners can expect to hear on the podcast. Well, Henry, we began the conversation with Cliff and Sergio by asking them about their new book called Learning from Serial Winning Coaches, Caring Determination. They told us about the qualities and traits of serial winning coaches, of course, those who have stayed at the top of their game for extended periods of time. It's a topic that they have both spoken about for years, and they finally got around to turning it into a book. It's available now from Routledge, and we hope this episode whets our listeners' appetites. In this episode, they really dug into the idea of caring determination, and these twin aspects, care and determination, they're on a spectrum. It's kind of related to challenge and support. A coach cannot challenge until the athlete knows that they will be supported and there is a level of mutual trust. Another interesting point they made, and they made plenty of course during this hour, is that organisations make the mistake of assuming that a coach is appointed or transitions from being an athlete as the finished article. Nothing could be further from the truth. Coaches are learning on the job, and this needs to be reflected in the policy and practice of coach development. They feel that's sometimes something that gets missed. Plenty of interesting points made on the podcast, John, as you mentioned. And one of the things that stood out for me was uh, who your serial winning coach was as well, John. (laughs) It's a top conversation with two excellent guests. So without further ado, here's today's episode on serial winning coaches with Professor Cliff Mallett and Professor Sergio Larabersial. Enjoy. Professor Cliff Mallett and Sergio Larabersial, thanks very much for joining the Leaders Performance Podcast. I'd like to kick off today's episode with uh, some exciting new news. You're both in the process of launching your new book that you've co-authored. As an entry point into this conversation, Cliff, I'd like to start with you and come to you first. Could you give us a a brief overview of what what the new book's all about? Well, the new book came about because of a a project that was... um the genesis of an idea around how do we inform uh, coach development, how do we inform identification and and recruitment of coaches to go into the high-performance system in particular. So the focus for the International Council for Coaching Excellence um, and about 12 major nations who funded this project was trying to identify what what can we learn from people who are very successful uh, as coaches, uh, what can we learn from them to inform 
um, identification, recruitment and development of coaches. So that was the genesis of the project. And then Sergio and I were given responsibility for uh, shaping the project. And when did you guys come together? When did it all first start? We've been coming together for a while because at conferences uh, run by the International Council for Coaching Excellence. But Sergio is Spanish, but also has lived in the UK for a long period of time. And his background's in basketball and basketball coaching. And I live in Australia, so I'm down under. And uh, my background as a coach is in athletics. So a lot of our communication uh, was actually virtual. But um, we had a number of opportunities to discuss uh, and to shape the project in the best way we thought to get an understanding of of who these uh, coaches were, but to go a bit deeper about trying to understand them as people. Yeah, and Henry, in, in that sense, the, uh, the project started really back in 2011, uh, went through all the way to 2016. Uh, but then since then, uh, we've been presenting the, the findings all over the world, really, to different audiences, which really motivated us to to put this to put the book together because we felt that in in the publications we had to date, a couple of papers really, we hadn't done really justice to to how deep the study was and how much uh, data we had. So we wanted to revisit that both in terms of getting more data or present more of the data that we had, but also informed now by our interactions with thousands of coaches over the last ten years, really. Of presenting the findings to them, really. So the, the book is, it is a research book, but it's also told through the filter of our interactions with those hundreds and thousands of coaches, uh, high performance coaches that we've been working with for the last ten years, really. Very good. And you mentioned it there. The book has been kind of shaped and presented to high performance coaches. Is that high performance coaches kind of in the broadest sense? So anybody at the top of their game across multiple sports, or is it um, you know focused at a certain discipline or a certain type of sport? It's across sports and across nationalities um, and different countries. And trying to when you're trying to make sense of uh, data um, and the interviews and the other information we got from the coaches. Um, in the sense-making process, you start to challenge your own thinking about how you're making sense of data. So the opportunity that we've had in our consultancy work has allowed us that continuation of an evolving analytical procedure to make better sense of it and to bounce the ideas that have been generated from the data uh, with current coaches. And gentlemen, you're both known for the term serial winning coaches. So... A great place to continue would be to ask you how you define a serial winning coach and to what extent are these serial winning coaches a product of policy and practice and where does the line sit? Yeah, no, good question. So what is a serial winning coach? Well, uh, we define serial winning coaches as those who are consistently successful, but they were successful across a long period of time with athletes and teams and different teams and athletes but also in multiple contexts. So many of these coaches coached in different leagues, professional leagues, or in different countries in Olympic sports. So there was something special about these people who are successful across time and context, right? And so we actually started to think of these people as outliers amongst the outliers, right? And collectively, I think, I'm not even sure what the latest is, but it's somewhere between 150 and 200 gold medals and and league professional league trophies they had won collectively. So these people aren't just a coach of one athlete who's performed well at the Olympics. These are doing it 
in different contexts and across time and different with men and women and, and different leagues. And that means that you can't do that unless there's something special about these people. So we wanted to interrogate and examine what can we learn from these outliers amongst the outliers. And in terms of the, um, to what are they a product of policy and practice and where does that line sit? Well, as you know, policy shapes behaviour. If you want to change behaviour, you change the rules. And people, uh, I guess the recruitment of high-performance coaches, uh, we'd like to think that there were strict policies in trying to identify and recruit coaches. But the longer you're in the game across countries, you realise it's a very serendipitous process. Uh, Typically, we make decisions about who we like, uh, who was a good player, uh, and who people on the board who employ and sack uh, as coaches, uh, who they like. We really wanted to, as a consequence of this, to try to inform policy to actually be better informed about how we do identify and recruit uh, and develop uh, high-performance coaches across countries. Because what we found in many cases is that actually these coaches were the ones shaping their environments. As opposed to being a product of the environment, they were the ones that had created those environments really and, and in a way planted the foundation for their own success and the success of people coming behind them. Yeah, that's that's a key point. These people were so visionary that actually they were shaping the policies, right? They, they picked up on four to eight year trends in the future and planning so far in advance, which was a unique finding in, in the data. They were, they were yeah, at least two Olympic cycles ahead of where most people were. In your book, you talk about their goals and their values. I think you use the term meta-stories and how these shape their narrative identities. Uh, could you say a little bit more about that? What is the key to understanding this area and how did you reach those conclusions? Was it through actually just talking to these serial winning coaches? Uh, yeah, we looked at a multi-layered understanding of a person and we also tried to get some sense of their context. So firstly, we asked a whole series of demographic questions around their family, their education, the sports they played as kids, but, uh, the sport they coached and how they, their, their coaching journey. We also collected data about uh, their, their parents' um, vocations or professions. Uh, we wanted to know whether they were married, divorced, uh, had children, all that sort of stuff. And that was the first insights that we got to these serial winning coaches was some of this demographic information revealed much about these people, right? So all but one had remained married to their first uh, wife because most of them were male. One had divorced but had remarried but learned through that experience. But a lot of the parents also had careers in the helping professions. So straight away you're getting some insights into these people have probably uh, been nurtured through caring environments uh, since early childhood. So that was the first layer of information. The second layer of information and trying to understand a person was trying to understand people as a social actor, which gets at what are your uh, your traits? How do you typically behave across contexts? So the, the big five uh, were the ones that we interrogated. So things like how open are you? Uh, how hardworking? Are you introverted, extroverted, uh, agreeable, cooperative? Uh, or And the degree of neuroticism. And that's been established fairly worldwide that the, the, the big five are pretty much where we've settled in terms of traits. But the strengths of traits are also their weakness. So traits are normative, so it's how you compare to other men, adult men or adult women. Uh, They're also decontextualized because the STEM is typically asking how do you behave across contexts. But the reality is that 
How we behave depends on who we're with. So context matters. So we need to get some other information about uh, these people beyond you as a, uh, a social actor. So we were interested also in the next layer of understanding someone is in terms of you as a motivated agent. So what gets you out of bed every day? What are you striving to achieve? And it's not specific goals per se. It's, it's their broad personal strivings. Like I want to put food on the table for my family. I want to be the best coach I can possibly be. So these personal strivings, we're able to get at things like, are you more likely to avoid challenges or approach? Is it about you or is it about others? And that, that mix between, I want to be a great coach because then I can be uh, make these athletes very successful. So there's a bit of you and there's also a bit, a bit of uh, the athletes. We also are able to look at motivational themes about uh, is a, a key focus around motivation and, 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 and achievement. Is it about affiliation? Is it spirituality? Uh, so we're able to get at some other, other aspects, deeper aspects about who you are beyond traits, looking at a motivated agent. And the third layer was looking at you as an autobiographical author. So what's the story you tell about yourself? Because this allows you to get at things like people's belief systems, their values, and you're able to draw upon their what we call their narrative identity. And what we did was you put all of that information into a bit of a blender, spin it round, and you get some. You start to connect the dots because not everybody, if you look at that information from those various layers, not all the dots connect. But for these people, they did. There was there was coherence in the the connection of the dots across those three layers of understanding a person and in context. So, and then the fourth, in addition to that, we wanted to collect some other information and Sergio can elaborate on that in terms of, we wanna know what their views are about coaching into the future. We wanna know what, um, what are their thoughts about, what are the trends in coaching? Because what you prepare today is for, you're preparing a coach for the next five to 10 years in advance. So Sergio, you might want to speak to that that part of the the interview process. Yeah, I mean that that was something that was really um, really important to the organisations that were funding the study, because they wanted to be able to look into the future, to see what we need to um, you know the coaches they they are recruiting now and developing now that they hope to be their Olympic coaches for eight years from now. Um, they wanted to understand what, what, what the trends are um, and really interesting, really, and sometimes unsurprising. But, uh, for example, the idea of uh, it's becoming more and more, it's always been, but it's becoming more and more a people's business, okay? The technical and tactical know-how, that's a given if you get to that level. What makes a difference is how well you're able to manage and, and work with groups of people. Uh, so that that idea of, this element, which is the, the whole motivational uh, relationship building area around coaching, which is not treated very well in coach education typically because it focuses more on the uh, on the X's and O's, uh, or also it's not maybe prioritized in the recruitment processes, um, is very important. Uh, they highlighted things like the, the technological developments and how do we manage technology because uh, a lot of them said that not because you can have the technology, you need to use it. You need to understand how that technology can help you because sometimes technology can get in the way. And, and there, were, there was some reluctancy around, are we losing the coach's eye, for example, and how do we train the coach's eye? So how do we balance the idea between that coach's eye and all the technology and, and all the information you get from the ever-growing 
support team around you because now at that level you've got a strength and conditioning coach a doctor a physiotherapist a nutritionist a sports psychologist uh the um, the video analyst and how do you filter all of that so managing the larger performance team again is one thing that typically get, typically gets overlooked in coach education but it becomes the reality of the job and i think that's one thing that um to me, when I've been presenting the work to coaches around the world, that's one of the bigger things really is, do you really understand what the job is? Because a lot of the times when we go into high performance, and it happened to me as a, as a high performance coach, I went into the job really very much focused on, do I know my basketball, basically? And I thought that, that my credentials were, I know my basketball. But actually, when you get to that point and that level, the basketball is just a given. It's everything else. Is can you manage a group? Can you get the most of your support team? Can you can you organize twelve months ahead? And and I think that that the realization of what the job entails really at that level is really important. And that's one of the one of the things that we end up spending the most time when I'm working doing workshops with high performance coaches to be is to really get them to understand what they're getting themselves into because in the in the main, I don't think it's clear. <laughs> Sergio, do you think that's why we often or occasionally see some ex-professional players transition into coaching, but actually they're not as successful as you maybe um, anticipated they would be? Because yes, they've got the understanding. Yes, they've got 10, 15 years experience in the game. They know the game, but they're not maybe um, that great at engaging a group or thinking ahead or you know collaborating with different departments. Do you think that's I guess the point that you're making there that not everybody makes that transition yeah I think there's a big element of that really um, and, and what we've seen not only in this in this research but in other research that, that has been done and, and Cliff has been involved in a lot of this research is that the players that transition successfully from player to coach have been actually working on their coaching for a few years already it's not overnight overnight transitions are very difficult but there are there are cases of coaches that have been the previous three or four years before retiring, they've been really, really starting to do their coaching and starting to think like a coach and getting their qualifications and, and getting mentors to, to walk them through it and even coaching some of the junior teams in, the, in their clubs. Um, and the other thing as well that we've seen is that to counter that lack of um, experience and a skill in some of the other areas of the job, uh, successful transitions normally have one or two people next to this new coach to support them in that process. Some a couple of more experienced coaches that are happy to to show this new coach the the ropes and um, and help them understand what the job really is and actually do some of those jobs that this person is not ready to do yet. Quick little exercise for you, Sergio. When you think of a serial winning coach, who springs to mind? And I'm going to ask you next, Cliff. <laughs> I always mention the same example, really. Um, Cliff was really describing before what the criteria are to be considered a serial winning coach. And my joke is always that at the time when we selected the sample, we discarded Pep Guardiola. He didn't qualify. Okay. <laughs> doesn't qualify. Not at the time. He does qualify uh, now. Uh, but okay. at the time, uh, because he had only um, won with Barcelona, he didn't qualify, really. Uh, obviously, 10 years on... <laughs> He is overqualified. <laughs> uh, but but that, that, that's the, uh, I mean, Pep comes across as a, as a, as a key example, uh, in, 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 especially in a sport like, like, like football, really, where he's, he's been in three different clubs in three different countries. And in all of them, he's managed to, to be successful. And 
know, people can always argue about the uh, the money and the finances and all that, but um, we, we we could give you a hundred examples of people that have been to clubs with the same amount of money and not been able to to make it a success. So, so that for me, Pep would be a key example in in football and in my sport. For example, you've got people like Phil Jackson, who won eleven NBA titles uh, with two different teams over a twenty five year period. Uh, so that's another example. But I'm going to let Cliff have a go and maybe some a- AFL, Aussie rules football. Well, I should, I'm going to go to an Olympic sport. And um, <laughs> similar to uh, Pep, uh, Michael Bowl is a, a classic Syrah winning coach in the swimming context in our country. So swimming's our most successful Olympic sport by a long way. And Michael, at the time, uh, wasn't a Syrah winning coach, but he's coached. Paralympic gold medalist. He's coached uh, men and women to gold medals over over four or five Olympic Games. Uh, so over an extended period of time, he's somebody who everyone here just admires, right? So his capacity to get the best out of people and to perform when it counts the most. He certainly is a serial winning coach now. Very good. Two uh, two different and great examples there. Thank you very much, John. Who's your uh, serial winning coach? Oh, as an Arsenal fan, I would love to say Arsene Wenger, um, who won the Premier League, of course, three times at our club. That won't be making the final cut, don't worry, guys. We'll cut, we'll cut that out. I'm not, I'm not an Arsenal fan, so we'll cut that one out. This is actually your second book, uh, Sergio Cliff, if I'm not mistaken, and I think perhaps an extension of the first edition. And I noticed the first edition was uh, termed driven benevolence and you've now swapped that for caring determination so could you just tell our listeners what what you mean by caring determination and and why you made that change yeah so i mean it is the first book what we had before what we were able to publish before was a a book chapter in another book in someone else's book in an edited book and then a a paper And, and and that was the motivation to get the book out because we felt that 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 wasn't doing justice to all the information we had and also everything that we had learned uh, over the over the, the last few years of sharing this. Yeah, so we started with driven benevolence, uh, and we defined it as uh, the relentless pursuit of excellence, balanced with a genuine desire to support athletes and oneself, okay? Uh, and what that really brings to the table is the idea of, yes, these guys are obsessed about winning and obsessed about their sport, and they make no apologies about it. They love winning. They they need to win. However, um, having said that, this desire to win also has a is informed by a philosophical foundation, a way of life that privileges uh, a humanistic view of the world, where they want to really do good by people, not just by themselves. Um, you might hear on the background my serial winning dog. Uh, <laughs> probably, uh, it's, not, it's not called Pep, is it? <laughs> the, no, Charlie. Um, named after Ancelotti. <laughs> no, but uh, he's probably barking at the uh, at the postman. But but look, yeah, that that's the idea. Why we went from driven benevolence to caring determination is because in our experience of working with coaches internationally, we found that the idea of driven benevolence didn't really connect with people uh, because those were words that were difficult to translate into um, into other languages so we, we came upon this idea of caring determination the concept remains the same in as much as um, that the, the, you know the balance between the, uh, the, the the relentless pursuit of excellence and the genuine desire to support people 
But over the course of the last few years and the further analysis of the data, we changed a couple of things really in terms of the concept. First, originally when we formulated the idea, we talked about uh, coaches being on a, on a continuum where they moved from at times on a situational continuum, right? Depending on the situation, they could be more driven or more benevolent, more caring or more determined. And that still happens, okay? Caring determination can be used in a situational context where at, at different times, you might want to be more, just call it pushy, okay? But at times more um, around the shoulder. But that's only the, if you want the tip of the iceberg. What we've really seen over the last few years and, and, and getting to grips with, with all the, uh, the data and the interactions with coaches is actually what this seems to be is a, a foundation of caring that allows you to then be very demanding when you need to be, okay? And a foundation of care and trust, without that foundation, it's impossible to sustain the, the levels of demands that you need to have at this level. So you've got that foundational level of trust and care. On top of that, then the, the determination to succeed and what you need to do. Uh, and then episodically, situationally, you may oscillate between caring or determined. But really, we're much more now into the idea of if you want to be successful and you want to be successful over time, you need to have that level of care and trust. But otherwise, you may be able to win once, but it won't be sustainable because athletes are not going to want to put themselves through that again. And, so, and, and that's a really major finding of, of the study, that if you really want to push an envelope with an athlete, you want to get the best out of them. If you haven't set up a foundation of mutual care between the coach and the athlete, so it goes both ways, you're not in a position, you don't have permission to push. So to get that permission to push, you need this foundational care. Um, and care actually un underpins trust mutual trust. And, and when you talk about trust, it's actually trust that you can actually deliver and make me a better athlete as well as make me a better person, right? And then when you've got those foundations, that ethic of care, um, you're in a position to ask a lot of an athlete and they're happy to do it. And they're happy to be autonomous in doing it rather than you actually you pushing them. So in light of that then, generally speaking, where does the balance tend to sit between challenge and support in that relationship between the coach and their athlete? I'll start off, Sergio, and you can add. Look, we've built on some work of some, of some British scholars here, Mustafa Saka and, and David Fletcher, and, and looking at that, that, that classic two-by-two two model. The great coaches are great at both. You can typically get the task coach, the one who pushes and challenges, but there's not a lot of support. And then you get the other extreme, where you get someone who's very much about relationships, but they don't pursue excellence. They don't have high standards and accountabilities. What, what we're saying here is that you need to be high in support and then you're in a position to really push and challenge people. So you need to be high in both. But it may oscillate, like Sergio was saying, um, a little bit. It doesn't, but it doesn't go from one extreme to the other, right? There will always be, in the view of an athlete from these people, that they always care. And every, everything they do is in the best interest of the athlete, both as a person and as an athlete. Yeah, and, and again, bear in mind that both Cliff and I are coaches ourselves, right? And, and in, my, um, in my current practice, really, in trying to, to bring all of this into my own practice, because I, I personally have a tendency to, and I, I always blame this on my Spanish upbringing, right? I'm, I'm up here in terms, in terms of demands, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm very caring, but sometimes that, that doesn't come across, okay? So for me, the effort has been, 
or I need to really, really uh, be explicit about building that foundation of trust and care and, and start there, always there with every athlete and then build, build the demands as we go along. Like, for example, we're starting a new season now. I'm spending a lot of time now. And, and again, this is something that we found in the research, purposefully finding time to build those relationships and prioritizing that exercise of building relationships. It's not something that it may appear casual in the way you go about it, but it's planned. You want to have a good relationship with everybody. So I'm spending a lot of time now. You know, if, if everybody gets there an hour or 30 minutes before practice, in that time, I'm there chatting to people and just asking them about their life. Bear in mind, I'm working with 17 and 18 year olds, right? I want to know them better. Some of them have never worked, you know, some of them I know from previous years, some of them are completely new. Talking about their families, their, where do they live, blah, blah. Uh, and until they're ready, they trust me enough that I can then start coaching them, if you want. Uh, and, and that's purposefully done. You know, obviously, some people might be more inclined than others to have those conversations and be more. That, that's more like like you are, if you want, going back to the idea of your personality traits and your uh, how sociable you are, if you want, how um, how comfortable you are in those sorts of situations. But to me, it's just become super important because I know now, after after years of doing this, that I can, in inverted commas, I can get away with a lot more with some players because they trust me completely, okay? And I can challenge them and push them a lot more because they know it's coming from a good place. And sometimes I use the... Um, the analogy of, of parenting, right? Your children will always forgive you for for when you challenge them eventually, okay? <laughs> because they know it's coming from the right place. They know you mean well, and they know you love them without conditions, really, unconditionally. That you always you always mean well, even when you get it wrong. And I think that's the point where you want to get to with the athletes. That even when you get it wrong, and invariably you will get it wrong, they know it's coming from the right place. So I've had moments where Maybe in a game, I didn't play a player. And after the game, I've, I've had a conversation with them and they go, it's okay. And, and I admittedly, I got it wrong. I should have played them, right? And they go, it's okay. I know I know you you were, you were trying to do the, the, the right thing, okay? And in this case, I was at the, I, I got the wrong end of the stick, okay? But um, I think that's a, that's a foundational thing. Question um, for you, Cliff. You mentioned that you kind of need both elements to be high in terms of you need the care and you need the determination if you're giving like a practical piece of advice for an aspiring coach in high performance sports would you kind of advise that one comes before the other or you try and nail one first before delivering on the other or do you kind of need to deliver both hand in hand all the time in order to kind of be at yeah. the top uh, good question i think that um they should be developed concurrently one of the challenges for a coach in the, as an early career coach is that they want to prove themselves. They just actually want to have credibility because if you don't have that credibility, you know, about technique and, and, and strategies and tactics, you're probably not going to hook them in. So the problem people have is they go too, forward, too far down that, that rabbit hole without actually coming back. And the other challenge for coaches is, you know, great coaches, I think, in the early part of their career or at some stage in their career or when they're with a new team or a new athlete, they actually take their time to sit back and observe. They're not in a hurry to show the athletes or the teams that, you know, they're a megastar, that they're great. They actually take the time to actually sense the environment. So these coaches are fantastic at noticing to inform their action. And they notice the little things about players 
when they come to training, there's a slight shift in their behaviour or they don't, you know, they, the way they're interacting with other people. They notice these little things that actually allow you to then have a conversation. And because you've built up rapport and trust, you can have those conversations with these people. And you're typically going to do it in, you know, in one-on-one situations. So it's hard for an early career coach because you, it's so easy to be seduced by, I need to prove myself and that I know a lot. That's why the great coaches don't say much, right? There's complex thinking that goes on, but their messages are very simple and they communicate and they're consistent in those messages over time. So the athletes don't have that confusion about what's expected of them, you know, but it's, and, and I think, and we, we, we term that simplexity, you know, it's their capacity to make the complex simple and understandable and relatable is off the scale, right? But again, they've moved on because they have confidence in who they are, because they've had some success. It doesn't mean that when I say they have confidence in themselves, it doesn't mean that they don't, um, they're not fearful of failing. There's a healthy dose of a fear of failure amongst these people. That's what drives them to be so committed and passionate about what they want to do as a coach and what they want to achieve with their athletes. We, we even developed a, a term that we called it uh, serial insecurity. Uh, and with, yeah. Because it, it was really, we were shocked in a way that we, we talked to these super successful people and, and a lot of them kept talking about, I'm just terrified of losing. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't care about how much I've won in the past. I want to win next year. And I don't know if I can do it. And I just need to prove myself. Like constantly proving themselves despite having won 20 gold medals already. All right. And there were two elements to that. Uh, how did they manage this serial insecurity to their advantage, really? Because it wasn't debilitating. It actually worked, like, like Cliff said, to motivate them to, to not get complacent and to keep working hard. Um, and they had this idea of, okay, when I feel insecure, there's two things. I, I, I can go back to the fact that I, I know I can do this. I've won before. Okay, so there's something there. And I know that I work really hard. No one is going to out, outwork me in that sense. And we call that the grounded self-belief. But there was also this element of reasonable self-doubt. Okay, am I good enough next year? Because like they, they are very, uh, like we've been saying, they're very conscious that the game or the sport changes really quickly and that other coaches are very good as well. I mean, they, 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 these guys were really humble. They, they never saw themselves from, from our conversations. No one came across as, I'm, I'm great and I'm just so much better than everybody else. They, they were aware that to win, they needed to be at their best because everybody else is doing a really good job as well. Um, they were never playing anybody else down or, or playing themselves up. But I was, it was curious to see that serial insecurity that these guys had despite all the success. And, and another phrase that we, we, we termed was associated with that was they don't just want to get ahead. They actually want to stay ahead. That's how driven they are. But they know staying ahead also means having healthy relationships and mutual trust and care with, with the people they work with. And, and as Sergio said earlier too, the discourse in around coaches and coach development needs to move away from uh, the singular coach or head coach because actually part of their responsibility is a team of, uh, of professionals, which could be assistant coaches, it could be uh, sports scientists and, and medicine. You have to nurture that team as much as the, the athletes in your squad or the players in your team. So part of your work as a, as a head coach is actually nurturing 
the learning and development of not only yourself, but every, every social actor in, in, your, in your setting. And those who are great tend to be very effective with the, the way that they nurture that village to raise a child concept. And what is it that prevents proven winners from getting stuck in their ways or replicating the same old processes? You've talked a lot about adaptability and staying ahead. I mean, how might a coach exhibit highly responsive and adaptive coaching behaviours? Well, part of that is, is what uh, Sergio has been talking about, that, uh, that insecurity. They, they are just so... So when a season, an example is when a season finishes, you know, coaches don't have six to eight weeks holiday. The most successful coaches are back on the horse within a week. You know, and one of the reasons for that, for some coaches, is that there's a sense of atonement. You know, this underlying narrative between, behind who they are. And, and you get that information from the life story. You know, sometimes they want to be heroes to somebody. You know, they want to, maybe they want to be a hero to their dad or to their mum or someone else, or they want to be a hero to themselves. So they just work so hard that they, they never, they're unlikely to ever stop working because it's just, they're almost a single, singular identity that they have is that this is my this is who I am I'm a coach and and they they're always in pursuit I need to know more than everybody else I need to be a voracious learner I read lots I'm a, a great student of of my game but I need to do that to be the best I can be so that the athletes and the teams that I coach are the best that they can be so that that is they are just so uh, driven to learn and that's a central theme in these people. Learning um, is a central theme that to be the best you can be, you've got to be a lifelong learner. And it's it's rhetorical and lots of people say it, but these actu- these people actually live it. <laughs> they action it every day. Right? And they're not relying on other people to give them information. They access other people as human resources about information and expertise, but they themselves go actively searching for it. And in a way, John, they only stop coaching because how passionate they are about the sport and how much they care about doing it well, their the, the perfectionism, they only stop coaching when they realize they don't have the energy or the desire to do it justice anymore. They don't want to go through the motions. I think the uh, uh, when you see what some of these coaches retire, for example, it's not because they've lost their appetite or, or it's when they realize, well, I can't do it justice. I can't do the athletes justice. I can't do the sport justice. Because in many cases, I feel like they... they Cliff talked about that they want to be a hero to the, to someone or themselves. I think they also have a sense of duty towards the sport, for example, to advance the sport and to leave the sport in a better place than they found it. And when they realize that they don't have the energy anymore or the drive to do that, they don't want to do a bad job. They, they'd rather take a step aside and let the next generation take over um, because it's that sense of duty came across really strongly. So in light of all of this, what can we learn then from serial winning coaches that helps to inform us about the identification, recruitment and development of the next generation of high performing coaches? I guess in a lot of the, a lot of the uh, consultancy work I've done in around developing high performance coaches in professional sports as well as Olympic sports and in making sense of this information, uh, what, what you come to understand is that people don't have a good understanding of who they are. And we, we talk to people and encourage them to have coaches to have uh, a, a philosophy. 
which sort of captures their essential values, their personal values and what, you know, and belief systems. But actually, we never give coaches the tools to actually better know themselves. And one of our criticisms is that we typically are reductionistic and simplistic. Well, let's just do a trait profile and I'll just tell you who you are through a computer, computer evaluated um, scoring sheet, which actually does very little to understand who somebody actually is. One of the things that I'd like to see is that in terms of informing policy and practice, that we actually are more sophisticated in the way we try to collect information about understanding a person. But the tools that we actually give these coaches are the very same tools they can use to get to know their athletes. So when you start having these conversations with athletes about, you know, what's a turning point in your life? Tell me a a, a title of your childhood. If you wrote a book about your childhood, what would be the title? And tell me a story about that. You know, we need to get at that information. We need to help coaches have a better understanding of themselves to understand their behaviour and understand their behaviour in particular contexts. Uh, but also those same tools are helpful in actually getting helping them to know their athletes better too. But most of the, the work we do in coach development is, um, is focused on the X's and the O's. Now, we're not saying that's not important, but we need to foreground a bit more um, understanding self and others to help people get the best out of themselves um, and to, to, to continue to become a lifelong learner in action, not in terms of just saying they want to be a lifelong learner. Because these these serial winning coaches, we spoke about striving and becoming. They are so driven to be the best they can be, sometimes because they're a failed athlete. Not everyone. And in some cases, you know what? I'm doing this for king king and, and, and country. You know, there's a higher altruistic motive We need to get at those deeper motives to understand what really drives these people to do the hours they do and to be so passionate and committed to helping people achieve their goals. I always say that um, particularly in this day and age where the knowledge about X's and O's is so accessible from other sources, why are we spending so much time in coach education with that where there's, there's a million YouTube clips that where you can look at you know, a four four two or a four three two one or or whatever it is that you want to do in your sport. And I think in, in, in those moments where we come together in coach education or when when there is a, a coach developer working with coaches, we should be working on things that we can only do when we are together. Like when things that can only be facilitated by being with other people. The technical stuff, the tactical stuff, that can be relatively easily done by yourself. And, and, and again, that's what we saw these guys do, really. These guys, in terms of their, their knowledge, they were finding their knowledge by themselves. They were self-generating knowledge, if you will. But this idea of spending more, a lot more time on things that can only be learned of, or, or done when there is some kind of interaction with others, whether other colleagues or the other aspiring coaches or a coach developer that is facilitating the uh, the thinking or the conversation i think that that that's what we should focus coach development really and also with the idea of because we also ask the coaches about how did you become so good at what you do really how, how did you learn to to coach and they value formal education but then especially early on but then it's all about learning on the job and learning from from your peers and um, so again how do we facilitate the idea of how do we accelerate learning on the job for example one of the the biggest frontiers in coach development and and how do how do we really, through that process, identify the guys that we feel might be able to go to the next level? 
because that's a much better assessment in terms of on the job than in any interview. So no, no, look, it's, it's challenging. Like Cliff says, it's a difficult job. It's not. Um, if it was easy, it would have been solved a long time ago. You know, I think we need to encourage development activities, move away from telling people and giving information and knowledge transmission to actually asking some deeper questions. I'm actually interested in, when we do work with high-performance coaches, what does care look like for you in your context? How do you go about creating a sense of us? What does that look like? What are your challenges and opportunities in actually trying to achieve some of these things? Because that's where the real skills of these zero-winning coaches lies, is their ability to work with people. So knowing self, knowing others, and getting people to work together, we would probably argue are the biggest challenges for coaches. But how do you help people to work together? Because there is an I in, in we, right, in team. There is that personal ego. And how do you get people to forsake the I for the we? Right? That, that's a, a wonderful conversation. And, and every time in a professional sport you bring in one new player, that's a different team. The social dynamics are different. So how do you work with that? And how do you get that person to assimilate into the value system of, of that team? Right? These, these are really advanced, sophisticated skills. I'd like to talk to you both about striving, surviving, thriving in high-performance sports, which I think is one of your chapters or themes coming out of the book. And we've alluded to it already a couple of times during this conversation. But could you just maybe elaborate on it a little bit more, Cliff, in terms of what you mean by that theme, striving, surviving and thriving, as you've kind of witnessed and, and conducted your research? I guess we're trying to capture and use language that was attractive to understanding the coaching journeys of these serial winning coaches. And from the get-go, people have to be striving to be the best they can be. All right? We like to talk about this notion that you're, you're always becoming. You know, I don't know what day you're an expert and the previous day you weren't. But if you have this notion that you're always becoming and learning central to you becoming better at what you do, and you're striving to achieve, achieve those things, and you have clarity of, of why you do what you do. Um, when you get out of bed every day, you're going to be passionate about all the opportunities that present itself. And you're even passionate about the opportunities uh, to learn as a consequence of all the disruptions and obstacles that take place. Because these serial winning coaches always saw those obstacles and challenges um, as opportunities to learn. And that's why they showed a lot of resilience in um, not so much rebounding, but they had this, this, these personal assets that allowed them to deal with these challenges on a daily basis because that's what you have to do as a high-performance coach. So the, the, the surviving part is really, I think, it's a critical part of the journey. Um, and, the, and the key concept in the surviving part um, is actually about time. It takes time to develop your craft. One of the unfortunate things in the identification and recruitment of coaches is that when we appoint I think there's a belief or an assumption that they're already an expert. You know, we have to challenge that, that belief and that assumption because I'm not sure who's an expert. I actually don't think myself I'm an expert because there's so much more I can know, right? And I, but I have to be proactive and seeking that information. So time for me, you've got to be in the gig long enough to actually be, to, to, and survive to actually develop your craft, you know, and... These coaches survived, I think, because 
Yeah, there might be some what we call rebound resilience. You know, you, you, know, you don't do well, so you get back on the horse. But they developed such wonderful uh, personal assets that buffered against stressors because stressors are inevitable. Fostering resilience in themselves and fostering resilience in their athletes was commonplace in both. Because probably what we didn't say from the get-go is we didn't just interview these coaches. We interviewed one to two of their athletes who had won a gold medal or a professional league trophy in the last five years. The data we got from the, uh, the athletes was more powerful than what the coaches thought. And there was consistency in what they were saying. You know, a mistake with the whole research design, it's my fault, but was we only wish that we had have interviewed their partners, right? And that came from a quote that uh, Sergio found was that when, you, when we knocked on the door, the wife said, are you here to interview my summer or my winter husband? Right? <laughs> and I, I've, I've, I just can't forget that quote because it just it highlights the seasonal nature of what they do and the, the, the stress that they're under. And we all assume that you know, they're calm and collected, but they're a bit of a duck. There's a lot of in, inner turmoil going on, but the way they represent themselves uh, publicly is, is quite calm. And the thriving part is you've got to survive long enough and develop resilience and, 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 and competencies in that space to occasionally experience some episodes of thriving. But as we know, the ebbs and flows of coaching, like you, you can't really afford to celebrate for too long because you've gone from being the hunter to now being the hunted. Everyone's chasing. Everyone's trying to find out what you're doing, but you've got to go, well, I did that two years ago. I've actually moved on now to something else. So thriving, I think, is aspirational. And I think when you get there and there's some episodes of thriving, it's, it's joyous, it's celebratory, but don't get carried away with it. And as Sergio said earlier, the, these people are very, very humble. Right? And the thriving bit for us fits in with the, the two-by-two sort of stuff with challenge and support. The capacity of these coaches, as reported by their athletes, to create a greenhouse where they are emotionally calm consistently, their behaviours are stable and they're dependable. And that's why we use language in around coaches as architects and sculptors. Your responsibility is to create an environment to allow people to potentially thrive, right? And it's not going to happen often because everyone's trying to be numero uno. But again, how do you create that environment where all actors within that environment have the potential to, to grow, to learn and to become better at what they do, both as a performer and as a person. And on the back of that, uh, again, one of the uh, one of the biggest findings for me of the study was the idea of uh, how or where these coaches were or, or had become over time about the need to look after themselves, to have a good dose of self-care to be able to survive and thrive and to be able to, do, to then be in a good place for them to be able to look after everybody else. One of the quotes was, if I'm not in a good place, I'm no good to my athletes. Um, so the idea of the strategies they had to really, well, I mean, don't get me wrong, the, the, this, this idea of work-life balance uh, for these guys <laughs> is really relative because obviously they, I mean, I'll never forget one of the, uh, the coaches said to me, um, yeah, uh, I think I've got a pretty good balance. Uh, I spend 220 days away from home with my athletes every year, but I think I've got a pretty good balance. And I was like, mm, can you explain that a bit more? <laughs> uh, it's a relative balance. You know, you have to find what works for you and your family. Okay. Well, like another coach said, 
I think the only reason why I'm still with my wife is, is because I'm away from home 200 days a year. Uh, yeah, I think that, that idea of self-care and, and not being as a... Because I think, again, back to something that Cliff said before, they have a sense of duty and they come from families that work in the helping professions. They feel they have to always be on call for everybody and, and that when you take time for yourself, you feel guilty about it because you, sh you shouldn't be resting. You should be always doing something for someone else, right? So learning to not feel guilty about that and to, again, be proactive in finding that me time that is going to allow you to regenerate and, and be in the best possible place, be the best person you can be and the best coach you can be for everybody else. I think that was a really good, you know, really important thing. And we actually gave it a name. They, they, we talked about you have to find your inner Homer Simpson, Okay, the, the the grounded realist person that can find the you know what is your beer and your donut that is going to keep you sane and and give you the me time to to be the best you can be for for the rest of people. So we always recommend people to find find their inner Homer Simpson. Uh, it's one of our catchphrases really uh, when we do the uh, the work. Very good. So in in light of that Homer Simpson analogy, I guess it's probably. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a good time to ask you about how serial winning coaches tend to perceive stress and find coping strategies. I mean, that's important. You, you've noticed that across the board with these serial winning coaches, right? Yeah. Well, actually, one of the things they did, several of them, they actually saw their role and their work as a coach as being a privilege. So that, that goes to perspective taking. You know, this is a privilege for me to be in this environment. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not a right. It's actually a privilege and I'm getting to work with some really capable people and let's see how far they can improve. So that perspective taking, I think, is really important. And um, they learn to, to cope over time, but I think one of the strengths of these serial winning coaches is their ability to deal with ambiguity, unpredictability and complexity. Right? It's chaotic. You go into a, a daily training environment and you, you assume that a, B, C is going to happen and all of a sudden it's a bit of C and it's D and E because you, you, all of a sudden an athlete turns up and there's something going on, you know. So there's always potential disruptors that challenge you and if you don't have that capacity to remain calm and focused and focused on the big picture stuff and the longer game, you're not going to deal well uh, with these things. And We want people to be fluid. We want people to be flexible and not to be too rigid. They all have a framework for which they adopt in how they want to operate. And a lot of those are sort of shaped in around particular values and belief, but they're fluid within that. That's the important point. So within that framework and that structure, they're not rigid. They're extremely fluid and adaptable because you have to be. And actually in doing that, they're teaching that and role modeling that to the athletes to be the same. Because a great quality of these serial winning coaches is their capacity to perform when it counts the most at an Olympic Games or a league championship. And they're modeling that for their athletes, right? So coaches' behaviors at the big gig, at the Olympic Games, they unintentionally can behave in ways that actually causes the athlete to be anxious and more anxious than normal. And therefore, as a consequence of that, they can underperform. So these coaches are consummate performers in their own right who actually set the tone and the emotional climate to allow athletes themselves to perform when it counts the most. And, and just to add to that, really, and we've alluded to it already, but one, again, one of the realisations really for them is that 
to be able to be at their best, they, they couldn't afford to either be, and one of the quotes was never too high or never too low. Just find, find that middle point that allows you to perform. And again, going back to role modeling that to the athletes, really, uh, one of the quotes from one of the coaches was, look, I don't do, uh, I try not to do the volume when I'm in a bad place or the champagne when I'm winning. I'm, I'm trying to stay in the middle. And the more time I can spend in the middle, the better, because that, that's where I, where I do my best work when I'm in the middle. So being so, it goes back to the idea of self-awareness uh, and, and, and understanding yourself really. Uh, if you can realize when you're going too high or too low and bring yourself to your optimal level of uh, performance uh, or optimal level of arousal, that, that's, that's big. And one other thing, uh, John, in that we ask people to um, try to control as many variables as possible, all right? But actually, we would see control as the problem, not the solution. And the thought, the thinking that you actually can control things is really is a, is a futile exercise. There's very little you can control. Most people can't control their thoughts. Most people can't control their emotions. And ask them to do so, it, it doesn't work for most people. So I think we need to change the beliefs about shit's going to happen. There's going to be some challenges and some some stormy seas ahead. You need to learn to to deal with those stresses as they come because they're inevitable. But thinking you can control them, I think, sends you down um, in the wrong direction. And that doesn't stop them from from thinking ahead and having a a plan B and a plan yeah, C. Yeah. Uh, but but at the same time, you might have a plan A, B, C, and D. And like Cliff was saying before, really the only plan that's going to work is plan G. <laughs> that day, and you have to come up with that plan G on the spot. And that, and that's that letting go of that that illusion of control it, it's really important because otherwise you're always feeling that you've got it wrong because it's your fault if you, if things are not happening the way you plan them you blame yourself all the time but a lot of the times it's it's out of your hands just a couple of final questions before we come to a conclusion cliff sergio i wanted to ask you if you were to write the book again and cliff you've already alluded to this already in terms of conducting research and asking athletes partners questions if you were to write the book again is there anything else you would do differently with the benefit of hindsight yeah now as i said before i think that the methodology we we uh, embraced right, provided us with a, a plethora and a depth of information uh, you can always do uh, more interviews and get more information i think that getting information from their partners and getting that that perspective i think uh, is really important. I think a real strength of the study was getting athletes' perspectives on their their psychological traits and and the, and the interviews that that we asked. I think if we can actually get deeper motives and, and understanding, you know, what drives their success and trying to understand that and and how you can actually create that in a in a storytelling way, I think it would be really a good way to communicate the rich data that we collected. Yeah, I think that um, there's not too much I would change, but I think yeah. You can always ask more questions and and it would be would have been awesome if you could have actually been in their environment to see them work. But again, one day in their environment doesn't tell you a lot. You know, that's why ethnographical research, if you could live there for three months, it would be awesome. <laughs> and that was the point that I was going to make, Cliff. My only, uh, and I'll give you a little bit of background of, of where I come from in this really um and I, I promise you, I'm not on a commission, uh, but the, 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 the chap that wrote the uh, Pep Guardiola books, uh, Marti Perar now, um, a Spanish guy, um, that's what he actually did. The, the books that he, he spent a week, a month, every year for the last four years with Pep in the dressing room. 
in the games, in the training ground, at the airport, at the office. And I'm really jealous of that. Uh, it, it, you know, <laughs> so, so because of the Spanish connection, we've actually built a bit of a friendship. So we, we, we talk every now and again. And I always say that to him, that I'm so jealous. Um, and, I've, I'm, you know, and, and I live in Manchester, so <laughs> Pep is next door. But I've not been able to get in there because he's very reclusive in that sense. And I wish I could, with Pep or with someone else, but just spend, like, Christmas a couple of months, three months, just to see the reality of how all this plays out in the real world. Because again, we were talking about, for example, the fact that every day is different. It's a dynamic environment to see that. And you get a sense, because what we've done over, over the last few years is, I've, I've personally, I've been, to, to the left here, there's a full shelf of coaches' biographies, <laughs> okay, that I've been going through the years. And also you've got all, the, uh, all these documentaries from Netflix, Amazon, and all that. And we've been watching all of that and, and listening to interviews. And... Uh, and you get a sense for that day to day, right? But to actually be in the environment for a you know for a sub- substantial period of time, that would be great. Because yeah, I, f- I feel like sometimes we are scratching the surface. Or and by the very nature of what we're trying to do, we're simplifying things because we want them to be accessible, right? But I'd love to actually observe that complexity in in the real world. Really. And and you know both like I said, both and I, Cliff and I are coaches, really. So we we leave that complexity, okay. But I'm definitely not, not at that level, okay? Both in terms of the, my own quality, but also the level of competition that these guys are at, okay? So I, I'd love to see that. Yeah, be a real yeah, fly. I, I would love to do more of that research too, but my university probably won't let me. But <laughs> there's, a, there's a solution to all problems or challenges, and one is PhDs are very helpful to be able to afford to spend a season uh, in, yeah. in these environments to actually get access to this information, which is amazingly helpful. So research is moving in that direction more so, which is great. Excellent. Yeah. Be a fly on the wall would be amazing. And uh, I think John probably shares your uh, frustration, Sergio. He's a, he's a North London, he's, he's in North London, so not too far away from Arsenal and the Gunners, but I don't think he's managed to get into uh, Arteta's changing room just yet to observe. <laughs> not yet, Henry, not yet. <laughs> he's working on it, he's working on it. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for joining the Leaders Performance Podcast. Uh, It's been great chatting to you guys. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invite. Thank you. And just a quick reminder that learning from serial winning coaches, caring determination is available now from Routledge.